2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. Thanks. Let's pray as we begin again. Father, we have a great need this morning. Every individual in this room and within the sound of my voice has a great need or some great needs. And we recognize that the person and work of Christ is sufficient to fulfill all those needs. And we know that your Holy Spirit is able to teach even us, to open our eyes and our hearts to your truth. And we pray in agreement with you that that's what we want this morning. That your word would be proclaimed, your spirit would move, and lives would be changed for your glory and for our good. We trust you to do it, God, because you love to do it and you're able to do it. And we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to finish chapter 3 today, which leaves us chapter 4 over the next two weeks. Um, Really been, I know I'd mentioned early on in this study as we started 2 Timothy that this book is near and dear to my heart because of history that I have with it and was so excited to share it with you all. And it has been more impactful in my life this time than it ever has been and um, it's been so good, and, and, and we've got nothing but good stuff in front of us, too. So, Starting today um, in... Uh, oh, that's weird. They cut off the zero. No, no, that should be 10, not 1. So let me read verse 10, which you're not going to see in front of your eyes. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So we saw last week the characteristics of those who make gospel ministry difficult. All those people making things difficult for those who would share the gospel, who would teach and preach and proclaim the truth of God's word. So then Paul leads in our passage today by contrasting Timothy to those people. You, however. Difficult people make ministry difficult, but you, Timothy, however... And what makes Timothy different than those who were making ministry difficult? Well, there's a few things. 
starting with Timothy's following Paul's example for living. He says that Timothy has followed eight things that were Paul's. He designates that by prefacing each of these things with my, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and then when we get into verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings. And it's good to note that they all have my before them. We've talked about this before, but that's a literary device that Paul uses to emphasize each one. By saying my before every one of them, it's calling attention to each of them. It's not just my and then a list. It's my this and my that and my this and my that. And Timothy has followed. The Greek word here means to have understanding, to attain to fully know and to follow. It means to follow after. And then this, this definition here is very specific and I like it. So to follow one as to be always at his side. To be always present to attend one wherever he goes. To follow up a thing in mind so as to attain to the knowledge of it. To understand, to examine thoroughly, to investigate, and then this one. To follow faithfully a standard rule so as to conform oneself to. It says that it means you carefully noted my life with a view to reproduce it. Or to put it another way, you patterned your life so that you would be like me. That's what it means for Timothy to follow Paul's my, 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 my. So that's the thought here. Is Timothy following these characteristics of Paul's life and ministry, making them his example so that he would be like Paul in these things? So with that in mind, again, we got a list. Last week we looked through that list of 19 things. We've just got eight things in this list. Um, But these things that Timothy noted in Paul's life in order to reproduce in his own. The first one is my teaching. You, however, have followed my teaching. The first thing that Paul says Timothy has followed is his teaching. All of this talk of the pure, sound doctrine in these pastoral epistles is Paul calling on his men to teach what he has taught. Having received the gospel directly from Jesus himself, as we've seen a few times in these letters and referred to, Paul purposefully preserved this teaching, this gospel, and he passed it down in a plain, reproducible way to his hearers and his disciples. And note that, people of God. What you believe, what you learn in the teaching, in the word, should be simple, should be pass-alongable. You should have some sort of system that you are going to pass these truths on to other people. You don't just catalog them in your mind or throw them in there and store them for no good reason. They're there and they should be set in order so that people can follow your teaching. Not, you all shouldn't just follow my teaching, even though you should follow my teaching because hopefully it's biblical, but you should have someone else whose teaching you are following, which is in line with what Paul taught, with what Timothy taught, what Jesus taught, hopefully what we're teaching here. It should be plain. It should be pass-alongable. So this teaching, the doctrine, the gospel, all of it was there in Paul's verbal teaching 
And we see it in his letters as well. And Timothy had followed that teaching. He observed it in order to duplicate it in his life and then in the lives of other people. Timothy, Paul says, had adhered to and was reproducing Paul's teaching. Next, you, however, have followed my conduct. Your conduct is how you act and how you control yourself, how you conduct yourself. Timothy mimicked Paul's conduct, making it his own. And Paul at one point would say, imitate me as I am an imitator of Christ. Timothy would have seen how Paul acted in situations, how he controlled himself when tested. And Timothy did the same things when treated the same way. He saw Paul labor and teach and serve and pour himself out for the sake of the glory of God. And Timothy did the same. I love this next one, my aim in life. Aim in life is translated literally as determination. It means your purpose. Timothy saw that Paul had one goal. Paul was a gospel laborer. He desired to make Jesus known. And in Romans, he tells us that he desired to make Jesus known where he'd never been proclaimed before. That was Paul's goal. That was his aim. That was his aim in life. That was it. And he looks at Timothy and says, you followed that, you've observed it, and you've done the same. My faith, Paul's faith was the trust he had in the person, the works, and the words of God. Paul had based his life around this God, and that faith showed in his good works. Paul walked by faith, not by sight, right? He says that in Corinthian letters. Knowing that he had been saved by grace through that faith. And so who else did the same according to Paul? Our guy Timothy here. Paul says, you followed my faith. What else? My patience. If you're getting tired of this list, have some patience, okay? Followed my patience. The word here translates as long-suffering. The ability to suffer for a long time. Timothy watched Paul suffer over a long period of time, including, obviously, the time of writing this letter. Paul lists of sufferings in 2 Corinthians shows clearly that Timothy had plenty of opportunities to both see and to copy Paul's afflictions. And Paul says, you have done that. The next one's really big, my love. You know, in all the talk of the Apostle Paul and his teaching and his doctrine and his labors, I don't think we talk enough about Paul's love. Paul loved God. And Paul loved people. Especially in our day and time when Paul was really just getting the, the business from people. He was a misogynist. He was a chauvinist. He hated this group of people and he was blah, 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 blah. Paul was a lover. Paul loved God and Paul loved people. First Corinthians 13 that we read at our weddings. Who wrote it? The love chapter. Paul wrote it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is zero doubt in my mind that if you ask Timothy or any of the people that Paul ran around with, if Paul loved them, the answer would, would have been a resounding yes. That man loves me. And if you ask Timothy if he loved Paul, it would have been a resounding yes. Yes, I do love Paul. 
In that love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that if he did anything and everything but didn't have love, it was all useless and pointless. Timothy had seen and copied the love of Paul. And Paul says, I see it, Timothy. I see you adhering to my love. Next is the last one in the verse and the next to last on the list. My steadfastness. The definition of the Greek word here is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Paul was for sure steadfast. He stayed on message. He kept his commitments. He labored long and he never changed his purpose. And from what he's saying here, Timothy replicated that and was continuing that pattern. And so we have to go into the next verse to get to the next and last my, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So the final item on Paul's you've copied my list is persecutions and sufferings. And you cannot read this letter without hearing those thoughts and those words and that pattern over and over and over and over again. Persecutions, suffering, struggles, hardships. And Paul says, Timothy, you've seen my persecutions and my sufferings and you have adhered to them. You have copied them. And he specifically references those that happened to him at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. I wonder why. We have record of those in Acts chapter 13 and Acts 14, and they go all the way back to Paul's first and second missionary journeys, which at this point would have been years and years and years ago, and plenty of sufferings and trials and tribulations since then. So why would he go back to there? Because that's where he first met Timothy. When he was in Derby and Lystra's, when he met Timothy, and they said, Timothy's a good guy, you should take him along with him. He said, cool, I do want to take him along with him. So from the very beginning of their time together... Timothy had been seeing Paul suffer. They stoned him and left him for dead. And if Timothy didn't see it with his own eyes, he heard about it. We stoned that guy, Paul. We threw him out on the dump and left him for dead. Timothy's like, what? So Paul goes all the way back to when they first met. And he says, you've seen it, Timothy, from the beginning of our time together. These trials and sufferings go all the way back to the beginning of Paul's ministry and Paul's time with Timothy. And he's also pointing out that Timothy had been a part of so many of these persecutions and sufferings and that Timothy had embraced his own suffering as well. And he finishes this verse by pointing not only to the enduring of these trials, but of God's faithfulness in and through them as well. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, you've seen my sufferings. You've suffered with me. We've endured these sufferings and from them all. The Lord rescued me and the Lord rescued us. But wait a second. Isn't Paul sitting in prison now about to be killed? So has God delivered him out of all of them? Yeah. And Paul continues to endure and the Lord will deliver him. In this case, it will be ultimate deliverance. Ushering Paul into his heavenly home, safe for all eternity in the arms of Jesus. 
God has always been and will always be faithful to deliver His people in the midst of and out of whatever suffering they may encounter. Listen, if you don't have that hope in your suffering, your suffering is going to be even more miserable. And in the midst of your suffering, if you do have this hope, the suffering is still suffering. But you have a hope in the midst of it that the Lord is going to deliver you out of it, even if it is ultimate, final deliverance. God has always been and will always be faithful to deliver His people in the midst of and out of whatever suffering they may encounter. If you are suffering here this morning, the Lord is faithful and He will deliver you out of this suffering. That's good news. Christ the sure and steady anchor as the tempest rages on. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Timothy had embraced that and Paul is bringing it to his remembrance as he calls Timothy to continue to suffer through this last letter to him. And not just Timothy, verses 12 and 13. Indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Oh man, we've, we've quoted this verse probably 100, in 100 application points over the years. Paul had just spoken of how Timothy had followed his persecutions and sufferings, referencing the early part of his ministry in Timothy's hometown area. And while Timothy has followed Paul's example and made it his own lifestyle, Paul wants to make sure that Timothy knows that it's going to be the common plight of all believers who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Indeed, which means for sure, pay attention, get a hold of this, you better bet your life, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And note that if there is a desire in a follower of Christ to actually live a godly life, then persecution will come to that person, those people. Now hold on a second. This is not just suffering. This is not just hardship. This is persecution, which means active engagement from somebody outside who's trying to contest who you are and what you're doing. Because you see... A godly life is the antithesis of a worldly life. And when you swim upstream, there's pushback from those going with the flow. They'll tell you you're wrong. They'll tell you you're bad. They'll tell you that you're hateful, that you're mean. And they will try to stop you by any means possible. And that's just the verbal part. I'm sure we've all seen videos of our brothers and sisters across the world being beaten, kidnapped, and much worse by those who are un- or anti-Christian. And Paul says here that these evil people, and yes, they are evil people, and these imposters, these false Christians who hate the truth, they will go on from bad to worse. They aren't going to let up. They aren't going to give up. They're going to get worse and worse. So note that, Christian, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecution is sure to come and it's just going to get worse and worse. 
There's your prosperity gospel. You'll have an abundance of persecutions. I promise you that. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and the people who are persecuting you are going to go from bad to worse. So don't let that shock you. It doesn't get easier, it gets worse, and it gets harder for true followers of Jesus. Because these evil folks are going to be deceiving and being deceived. They're liars like their father the devil who has been a liar from the beginning. And again, don't forget that these evil people are not morally neutral. Nor are they their own masters. They are held captive by the devil to do his will. So they deceived even while... They are deceiving other people. It's a terrible plight for these people. And it causes a terrible plight for those who are being persecuted by them. The followers of Jesus who are in their paths. And this will be bad and get worse until Jesus comes back and sets all right. And Paul wants Timothy to know this so that he's not surprised going forward in his work and ministry. As Nero uses Christians as human torches for his garden parties. As they're fed to the lions. And they've got to hide and meet in catacombs because the persecution has increased and has increased and has increased. It's so that Timothy and his followers don't go, we didn't know it was going to be this bad. And so that we in 21st century America can look and say, he told us. He told us. We act so surprised when things get hard. Or when the world doesn't like us anymore. Why are you surprised? Here's the news. I didn't say whether it was good or bad. It's just going to get worse. Yay. Paul wants Timothy to know this. The Holy Spirit wants us to know this so that we're not surprised going forward in our work and in our ministry. And to help encourage those that Timothy will be ministering to as well so that Timothy can pass this message on. And the Holy Spirit in his infinite knowledge knew we would need to hear it too so he included it in the scriptures for us to be talking about today. So we should not be surprised when the troubles and the persecutions come. When the laws start being passed that restrict our rights. Oh, woe is us. Not hardly. It has always been, it will always be, and it will go from bad to worse. Write that down. Now, back to Paul and Timothy, verses 14 and 15. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So hard times come, persecutions arise, evil men and deceivers go from bad to worse, and how are we to respond? How is Timothy supposed to respond? But as for you, Paul says... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And I love this. It's not a call to find a new breakthrough coping mechanism. 
or a modern deliverance ministry. But instead, Paul's prescription is continue. Keep on keeping on. Keep doing what you've been doing. Oh, and get a hold of this. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3-4, which we'll reference again later. Listen. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Watch this. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Does that sound like there's something new to be had or tried in order to find ways to cope or deal? A resounding no. But as for you, continue in this. Continue in everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Continue in the knowledge of Him. Continue in the precious and very great promises. Continue in partaking in the divine nature. Continue, Paul says to Timothy, in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy had surely learned a ton from Paul and their other cohorts, but it wasn't just learning. He had firmly believed it. Have firmly believed is one Greek word, pisto, the root word being pistis, which is faith. Timothy didn't just have some head knowledge. He didn't just gather information. He had placed his faith fully in what he had been taught. He had rested all of his weight on the truth of who God is and what God was doing. There was no plan B for Timothy. His faith was fixed and firm. And it wasn't just Paul, even though that would be awfully good. No, Timothy had learned what he had learned from childhood. We saw in 2 Timothy 1.5 that both Timothy's mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice had a sincere faith and they had passed on their faith to Timothy. Oh, the quality and closeness of the people who teach you faith are so important. And what a blessing a godly heritage is. Mamas, you are doing holy work. I'm not saying that to make you feel better. I'm saying that because it's the biblical truth. You are doing maybe the holiest of work in the world as you teach the sacred writings to your kids. There's not a higher calling on the earth. Timothy had learned what he had learned from childhood from his mother and his grandmother. Timothy was at least a third generation follower of God. Paul can only speak to what he knows and he knows that Timothy's faith was a product of the toil and life of his mom and his grandmother. And Timothy, knowing these ladies and knowing Paul, had a wonderful surety in what he believed because of the quality of those folks who had planted the gospel seed in his life. Timothy could look at their life and say, it's true, it's real, it's fruitful, and I'm the recipient of that fruit in the lives of these people who mean so much to me and who have shared so much with me over the years. They had taught the Bible to him from childhood, Paul says. 
The sacred writings were important in their family life. And those writings were able to make you wise, Paul said, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And just to note, Timothy could not have had the New Testament taught to him from childhood as it wasn't complete until decades after this letter was written. The sacred writings that Timothy were taught would have been what we refer to as the Old Testament. And there's a Unfortunately, some weird trend in the church today that says we leave the Old Testament behind. Paul says that these sacred writings, that Old Testament, these sacred writings were able to make Timothy wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now don't miss that. What Timothy had learned from the Old Testament writings were the seedbed that led to his faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, to know the depths of the Old Testament. It's not a crappy prequel to our favorite movie or something like that. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many times have you thought, said, or heard of somebody else say, the God of the Old Testament is, no, I don't like him. The God of the Old Testament was preparing the way to redeem his people through the sacrifice of his son. And he's the same today that he was In 600 B.C., 1200 B.C. We have got to be immersed in the Old Testament as much as we are in the New Testament. Because the Old Testament is the history of God's dealings with His people from creation to the time leading up to the life of Christ. And Jesus Himself says in John 5, You search the Scriptures, the Old Testament... Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, he said to the Pharisees and scribes. Those Old Testament books are invaluable. We cannot place a worth on them. They surpass anything we could possibly understand because they point us to Jesus. If you're reading the Old Testament and not seeing Jesus, you're not reading it right. It is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says. They point us to Jesus just like they pointed Timothy to Jesus. And if you had any doubt about this whatsoever, about these scriptures, look at how our passage today ends as we look at verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we were laying out the track for the the pastoral epistles and who would preach when, uh, initially Bob had taken this passage and I was so sad because I wanted this. I wanted this right here. (laughs) I wouldn't say that Bob was doing it. I was just sad that I wasn't doing it. Let me say it that way. Let me make sure I'm clear about that. Oh, no, Bob's doing this. That's not what I thought. (laughs) He's a bully. He beats up little kids and takes their trophies. So He took my passage, you big bully. I was sad that I wouldn't be able to preach this passage, but God, in His love for me and me only, He has given me this passage. What a passage. What a couple of verses of the Bible. It's a well-known, often quoted couple of verses, and rightfully so, and we really could take five or six messages on these two verses alone and not plumb the depths of it if we wanted to do that. Volumes, books and books and books and books have been written just to try to untangle all of this wonderful, beautiful passage, these two verses. So let's see what we can do with it in the time we have left today.
Paul had just been lauding the ability of the sacred writings to make Timothy wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He then goes on here to say that the reason this is true is because all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now listen, when you're reading your Bible, the words that you are reading have been breathed out by God. What a statement! The word scripture, which we use so often, just means writings. Scripture means writings. And these writings, Paul says, are breathed out by God. Breathed out by God is one Greek word, theopneustos. It means inspired by God. That's literally what it means. Given by inspiration of God. The literal wording is God breathed. The Bible sense lexicon says it means produced by the Spirit of God and understood as the air that was physically expelled out of the lungs of God. Now God's not a person and he doesn't have lungs. But this is the only way Paul could use to convey that when you read the scriptures you understand these are the very words that came from God himself. We're Bible people. Because we are firmly convinced that the words that are found in the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments literally came from the mouth of God. The point is that the words of the Scriptures came from God Himself. Period. He used human writers to write them down, but these men were writing down the very words of God Himself. God directed them, and by the Holy Spirit, they wrote exactly what God said. Please hear me, church. Divine inspiration is an irreplaceable and an irrefutable truth if we are to understand the Bible. If God's Word is not God's words then men made it up and it is useless and pointless. But Paul, the inspired apostle, says here that the holy writings are the very breath of God. So when you sit down in the morning and you're reading your Bible, you're hearing the very breath of God, the very words of God. Is it boring sometime? Yeah, because we're sinful. And God knows that. And He continues to speak. And He continues to speak. And He continues to speak. And He speaks through the Bible. Not some harebrained idea you have in your head. Or a fluttery feeling you feel in your chest. It's a slog through all 66 books. Leviticus and First Chronicles and Numbers and Habakkuk, Job, the very words of God, breathed out by God Himself, recorded through human people writing down those words. And you better bet your life on that. Place your faith completely in that. But not just that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. The genealogies are profitable. They don't feel like it, right? 
begat, 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 bunch of names I can't pronounce, begat, begat, profitable. All Scripture is profitable. One would think that if there is a God and He had recorded His words in a book for His people, that those words would surely be profitable words, right? Gain is to be had from the holy writings. There is wealth and there are riches in God's words. And that profit comes from their ability to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. And actually there's that emphatic use of the article again. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Four, 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 four. That's four fours if you're counting them, by the way. So there's another list worth looking at. These scriptures are profitable for one, teaching. This Greek word is focused on the fact that the scriptures are able to teach us what the doctrine is. Merriam-Webster defines doctrine as the body of principles in a system of belief. So the doctrine is what you need to know to believe rightly. And the scriptures are profitable because they teach us what to believe. They teach us what we need to know in order to live the way that best glorifies God. You can't do it if you don't know it. And knowing comes from the doctrine. And the doctrine is found in the Bible. The scriptures are profitable in that they teach us the doctrine. For reproof, this isn't very fun. This word means an act or expression of criticism or censure. So this means that the scriptures help us by showing us what we are thinking, feeling, and doing wrongly. The scriptures tell us that we're wrong. Godly people tell us when we're wrong. Based on what the scriptures say, right? Who likes to be told you're wrong? Come on, enthusiastic hands should shoot up me. Okay, thank you, Stephen. You're wrong. <laughs> you're welcome. We really should love it, though. If I'm doing something wrongly and somebody tells me that's wrong, that's a blessing. Right? If I'm doing something that's wrong, I need to know. And the scriptures do that for us. We need that. How many times has somebody pointed out that you're doing something wrong and it helped you tremendously? Of course, in our day and time, we find out from internet hacks that we're doing everything wrong. From peeling a banana to running wires in a breaker box. I've been doing it wrong my whole life. Ain't going to change now, right? That's not what this is about. The scriptures point out in the power of the Holy Spirit erroneous parts of our lives so that we can forsake them and walk the way the Lord calls us to. It is wrong to commit adultery. It is wrong to kill people. It is wrong to lie. The Bible is clear in these things and in many, many others. And listen, that is profitable for us. If somebody comes to you and says you're doing something wrong, bless them. And if they're using the scriptures to tell you what's wrong, doubly bless them. Because that's profitable. We learn from the Bible what is wrong. But that's not all. Correction. For correction. This word means restoration to an upright state, an improvement of life or character. The Bible doesn't just tell us what's wrong through reproof. It also tells us what's right instead. 
Adultery is wrong, so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Killing's wrong, so love your neighbor as yourself. Lying's wrong, so speak the truth in love to one another. So not this, but that. Even down to minute details that we don't have a book, chapter, and verse for, because the Bible's clear that we're to give preference to the other person in all of our Christian conduct. That's the way we're to always walk. Not in selfishness, but in selflessness. That's corrective. That's telling us the right way. So if you're selfish and I come to you and say, hey, you're acting selfishly, you should be more selfless in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, not this, but that. That's correction. And actually... In our church covenant, submit to the loving rule, oversight, and authority of the elders regarding reproof, instruction, correction, and loving discipline. wonder where that came from as they submit to Christ who's the head of the church. If we as elders are not correcting and reproving you, we're not doing our jobs. And then we got that straight from here. That's why I wanted to point that out. The Bible helps us to show us the correct way after showing us the wrong way. Teaching, reproof, correction, and finally for training in righteousness. This whole letter has felt like a spiritual boot camp of sorts, urging Timothy to dig deep and to work hard. Well, as it turns out, the scriptures are profitable for training. If one is to grow and develop properly, there must be training. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual training. Think working out. Think picking up heavy things and sweating. Think learning a body of information. Learning a vast amount of information by repetition, repetition, repetition. Think hard work and discipline. The scriptures are profitable for training in righteousness. Discipline in being righteous. Righteousness is defined as integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Righteousness is right living in light of who God is, body, soul, and spirit. And the Bible is our boot camp and our workout plan for the rest of our lives. Getting back to the thought of continuing in what we already have, the Bible is the complete work that we refer to for our entire Christian life in order to learn, grow, change, and be stretched and to be who we are supposed to be. It's profitable to us for that. You reckon the Bible's important? And how far-reaching is this profitability of the Scriptures? Paul tells Timothy that the Scriptures are profitable so that the man of God and the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. This speaks of the sufficiency of the Bible, a doctrine that has come under attack in our day and time, actually since it's been compiled. The Scriptures, the Bible, the breathed out words of God, ensure that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And again, I can't help but think of that Second Peter passage we looked at earlier. Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. God has recorded it all in a book. 66 books that make up one book, the scriptures, to make sure that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we want to be complete, if we want to be equipped for every good work, we have to consult the Bible. 
Complete means fitted out, furnished or equipped with every necessary component for a task or purpose. Batman has a utility belt. We have a Bible. There's not one thing that we need to be godly that we can't find in the Bible. It makes us complete. And it ensures that we are equipped for every good work. Want to know what you should be doing? Want to know what work God has called you to? You don't need an ecstatic experience or a fresh revelation. You need to know your Bible and consult your Bible. It ensures that you are equipped to do every good work that you need to do or that God has called you to do. Profitable indeed. Inspired indeed. Sufficient indeed. Wow. What a bunch of stuff we can apply from all of this. We're going to look at five M's. M and M and M and M and M and M. And actually the first one I added after we were singing because I thought of it while we were singing. Five M's. Monotony. Mentor. Mayhem. Mama. Manual. That may be my favorite set of application points ever. Monotony, mentor, mayhem, mama, and manual. First is monotony. What we're looking at here is, we're going to ask the question, what shapes the man and woman of God to do the work of the ministry? And the first is monotony. God uses monotony. Continue in what you have learned. Dig from the well of the past. Keep doing what you've been doing. How long? Every day. All the time. In the laundry and the dishes. In the work week and the vacation. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, so husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Masters, be good masters. Servants, be good servants. Well, that's not real exciting, is it? It's the monotony of the normal, everyday, mundane stuff that God uses to shape us to be more like Jesus. And we curse it. We shake our fist at it. Oh, I'm so bored. So tired of laundry. I'm so tired of Mondays. I'm so tired of, I hate, I can't stand. I'm bored out of my skull with this and this and this and this. And it's those things that God is using to shape you more than you could ever realize. And there are more and more writings, more and more things that are coming out where people are talking about uh, a liturgy of the everyday. Getting out of bed, brushing your teeth. Fixing breakfast, driving to work, doing your job, coming home, being bone tired, watching some stupid show, going to bed, sleeping, getting up and doing it again. There is glory in the monotony. Continue in what you've learned. Don't miss the blessing of right now. Don't miss the presence of God wherever you are in whatever you're doing. Just because you're so bored, you don't even want to look for it. God uses monotony 
to shape the man of God to do the work of the ministry. Sunday by Sunday we come and somebody stands up here and reads the Bible and we quote the things and we sing some songs. We take a break. Oh, sorry, we do the table. We eat bread. We drink juice. We sing the same old doxology. We have a five-minute break. Will comes up and tells some bad jokes and then he reads the scriptures. Then I come up here and talk for an hour and then I say, stay and eat with us if you can. And we go back in the back and we eat and we clean and we leave and we go home. We take a nap and then we do our Sunday thing. And next Sunday, we'll do it again. And it's good. It's good. It's God designed to shape you for the work of the ministry. The common, normal, everyday means of grace. The Bible, praying, witnessing, memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture, loving God and loving people every day, day in, day out, day in, Day out for three score and ten, or if we're lucky, four score. And then we go to heaven where there's going to be a glorious monotony for all of eternity. Not laying on a cloud, strumming a harp, praising God for the rest of our lives, serving Him in what probably we look at today as everyday mundane tasks. Don't miss the glory of the monotony because God's using it to shape you. Sorry, I stayed on that longer than I meant to. What else does God use to shape the man and the woman of God to do the work of the ministry? He uses mentors. If you don't have somebody in your life who is purposefully pouring themselves into you for the sake of gospel reproduction, your life becoming like their life, grab somebody today. And say, please pour your life into me. Every single one of us needs a mentor or some mentors. Don't let another day go by without one. The old Bob Dylan song, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? It might be the devil, it might be the Lord. Who's your pattern? Well, Jesus is my pattern. Well, you see Jesus through the lives of his people. If you want to be like someone... Be with that someone. Because you're being shaped by people whether you recognize it or not. Be intentional about it. Have a mentor. Have somebody who is pouring their life into yours. You will be like someone. So be intentional on who that someone is. Look at their lives and say, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that lady. And then come to them and say, please pour yourself into me. You will be like someone. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, and others also, and others also, and others also, and others also. Life on life, person to person, nose to nose, belly to belly ministry is among the holiest of all ministries as well. That's why I say, ladies, mothers, you're doing it every day anyway. But you need somebody to be doing it for you, with you, so that you might replicate their lives. Please find somebody to mentor you. Monotony, mentor. What else does God use to shape the people of God to do the work of the ministry? He uses mayhem. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Now let me ask you this. Is that against the plan of God? No. Are sinners sinning and persecuting us? Yes. And is God using that for our good and for His glory? Even what the enemy means for evil, you work it for our good. And listen to me. God uses the persecution from ungodly people to shape and fashion His children. He ain't going to waste that. God's not going to look and say, Oh man, sorry about that. Evil men and sinners hung the Son of God on a cross. They persecuted Him unto death. And it was according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. God uses the persecution to shape us and fashion us to make us more like Jesus. Look at the prophets in the Old Testament if you want to see how God does this. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Who did that? God did that. To who? His people. Habakkuk 1.12 Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them, these punishments, these persecutions, for reproof. Well, God's not going to let His people be persecuted, is He? Oh, yeah. And He's going to use it for their good and for His glory. God uses mayhem, the persecution of ungodly people, to shape the lives and the life of His people. Monotony, mentor, mayhem, and now, of course, mama. I know not everybody has had godly parents to shape and nurture them. But let me tell you this, if you had them, praise God for them. I sat at a table yesterday with my mom and my dad, my wife and three of our kids, because one's gone now. My sister and my dad said, man, we got a good family, don't we? And I looked at him and I said, y'all did something right. And he just hung his head. If you've got a godly set of parents or a godly parent who poured themselves into you and taught you the holy writings, praise God for them. And pattern your life after them so that you're doing the same for your kids. The home is the primary place of making disciples. Not the church. We help you in that. Mom, Dad, you do the bulk of the work. Proverbs 20, verse 7, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Deuteronomy 7, And these words that I command you, God says to his people, today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Everything you do all the time should be you teaching your children how to observe the words of God. How to keep them. How to do them. And if your house is not structured around that, fix that today. Do it on purpose. 
Don't hope that it happens through osmosis, through the church or other people. It is your job, Mom. It is your job, Dad. And it is a holy calling. God uses families to shape his people to do the work of the ministry. Monotony, mentor, mayhem, mama, and finally, the manual. The Bible. God uses the Bible. Every necessary God-breathed word for the formation of your spiritual life is in your Bible. And we've got it with us everywhere we go now. We are without excuse. You're like, don't make me feel bad. I'm not trying to make, I'm trying to give you a hope. You can listen to it. You can read it. You can sing it. You can put it on the walls. You can, it's the Bible. It's the very words of God. And God shapes and fashions his people to do the work of the ministry through the Bible. And I hope that that's not just yeah, you say this all the time, or yeah, I believe that. I hope you run into that word and say, God, breathe on me today. Speak your words to me today. Fashion and shape me into the image of Jesus so that I might do your work for your glory, for the good of others, and for my own good. How valuable is the Bible to you? How profitable has it been in your life? How profitable can it be in your life? I'm going to go back to 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I understand these verses aren't about the Scripture specifically, but I know that the Scriptures are included in this. Through the knowledge of Him, which comes from the Bible who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises found in the Bible, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Like God, doing the things that God would do, doing the things that God does in and through you, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that transformation, that renewal comes from the scriptures. And back to what we looked at earlier. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Can't can't not reread this. But as for you, and I would say this to each of you individually. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Oh, the worth value, and power of the Bible. Don't short sell it. Expect great things from God as you go into your Bible every day, all day. Because He's going to use it to shape you and fashion you, to do the work of the ministry, to bring glory to Himself, good to others, and good to yourself. What a passage. Let's pray.
Father, we have a great need. You have multiple great needs and you have met them all. You have overcome them all. As you have revealed yourself to your people through the years, through your word. May what we speak and do and teach come from the scriptures. May our lives be changed. May our power be evident as you speak your word to and through us. God, may we not curse the monotony. May we not curse the mayhem. May we find mentors. May we thank you for our godly parents if we had them. And may we be those godly parents if we didn't. And finally, God, may we consult your manual, your Bible, for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And may you get glory in our lives as a result of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dismiss and before I give the benediction, Don, Bob, can y'all come up here a second? Uh, you're about to find out now. Yes. It actually has nothing to do with y'all. Um, a while ago, there was a campaign that happened uh, to get a couple of cards and to say some encouraging words and to bless and encourage our deacons. A guy named Will and a guy whose envelope has nothing written on it, who we will call today Steve. There we go. Will, Steve, if you guys could come up here. And I know y'all don't do what you do for thanks and praise. You don't do it for attention. Oh, folks, if y'all knew. If y'all knew everything that these two men did for you. You'd thank God for them. I don't know who wrote it. Actually, I think Jeannie might have wrote it. I don't know. I don't know. Just some cards with some encouraging words from the church, guys. There's some gift cards in there just to say thanks. Please do. Guys, we're very, very thankful for you. We praise God for your faithfulness, your labor, your love. And um, I, I go to pastors' events, and everybody's talking about the deacon board and the deacon board. And they spit it out of their mouth like it's venom. And I'm like, not me, bro. Not me, bro. We got the best. And I praise God for you. Bob, you want to pray for them and thank God for them, and then we'll dismiss with a benediction?
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, you're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.